Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning, Vietnam! I love the smell of my pub in the morning. Hello and welcome to the Movie Scramble podcast. Since there are very few cinema releases and the fact that it's about 300 miles that you would need to travel in order to see Wonder Woman this week, we are not reviewing any new cinema releases. What we are doing today is we are continuing our Hitchathon which I've decided to start calling it. Basically, we are taking two Alfred Hitchcock films that have elements in common and discussing them. They're usually from different phases of his career, and it gives us an opportunity to dive into the Hitchcock box sets that we all have and love. Now, today I am joined by both of my colleagues, which is absolutely fantastic, really, really good. First up is Thomas Simpson, who is putting us all to shame at the moment by the fact that he is a published author again. Just last week, his second novel, Blackened, was released. You can get it on Amazon. It is available on paperback and it's available on Kindle. And he hasn't actually paid me to say this at all, which is really good. Mr. Simpson, published author, how the hell are you? I'm very good, John. Thank you. That was a I, what, an, what an intro, how did I really follow that up? I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad we're calling it the Hitchathon and not the Cockathon. <laughs> <laughs> totally different audience would be in that there. But yeah, I'm good. It's good to be back. It's been a long time since I've did a, a movie podcast for you guys, and I'm looking forward to it. Although I feel like a total fraud because this seems like a very highbrow Hitchcock podcast, you know, and I'm kind of like, <laughs> man. I'm in my depth here, which is interesting. I've had this podcast, I've had this, this box set we're speaking about for 13 years, and it's oh. only been this year I've really started watching it. Also on the podcast is the third member of the team who this week displayed some magnificent thespian skills, which have been dis- which have had her described in variety uh, as the brando for this generation, where Mary Palmer plays. Bruce Willis playing John McClane in Die Hard, vest and all in a darkened room. Um, <laughs> if you don't believe me, please go online and find it because it is out there. Mary, how the hell are you? I have slightly more hair than Bruce Willis, so that, that was an issue. But it was while well, we had our Christmas party and work this week, and what can you do over Zoom? So I decided to don my vest, steal one of Chris's lighters, and crawl along my hallway to make it look like the air vent in Nakatomi Plaza. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not a published author. I'm just, I feel like a fraud, actually, because uh, you guys are obviously, I mean, John, you read The Guardian and such highbrow eh, publications, and Simi, you write your own stuff. And who am I? I'm just a guy in a vest trying to rescue some Christmas party goers. <laughs> well, not strictly true, obviously, because you you published journalist. Yeah, you know? many many minutes ago. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, seek Mary out. 
online. It was a Film Stories magazine, I believe. Yeah, you, it you was actually. Yeah, so I wrote an article on cinema and mental health, actually, because that's something that's very important to me. But yeah, I forgot about that, John. Thanks for reminding me that I did do some good in my 31 years in this earth. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been here longer and I've done less than both of you, so I'm quite happy with that as well. I'm not uh, putting myself down in any way. Um, if you are going to seek me the online, please remember to use incognito. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are talking about Hitchcock films and the first of them is the 1942 film Saboteur. I'm Barry Kane, American. Right now I'm a fugitive. A couple of days ago I was an aircraft worker. Then something happened. My best friend died in that fire. The authorities questioned everybody. I told them what I knew. You don't know what it is to be hunted like an animal. To dread every door you open. To fear everybody, even the one girl you could love. Even if a man committed murder to defend himself, maybe I wouldn't tell the police. But there's only one reason why a man commits sabotage, and that's worse than murder. The film stars Robert Cummings, Priscilla Lane, Otto Kruger, and Norman Lloyd in a very early outing for him. He has become, oh, gone on to become a, a particularly well-known face on film and television. The film itself starts at an aircraft factory in Glendale, California, where an act of sabotage has been carried out. The main suspect is a man called Barry Kane, who is accused of starting the fire and also killing his best friend. Now, in order for him to prove his innocence, he tries to track down the man he believes is the real culprit, a man called Fry, who he met at the aircraft factory during a break in work. And he follows some clues that he found, primarily an envelope that was addressed to him. And he starts traveling across the country to try and track down the man and get to the bottom of the plot to basically stop the American war effort. Now, this was one of Hitchcock's first forays into American cinema. It was just after America had entered the Second World War, so it was particularly relevant, although the, the pre-production actually started before they started getting involved after Pearl Harbor. But I believe the film is due to start round about the same time as Pearl Harbor actually happened. And obviously the war was in everybody's minds for a good few years before that, even in the likes of America. So it seemed very pressing at the time. It was reasonably well received from what I can see. And there's obviously a lot to take in about this story. So Thomas, what were your initial thoughts on the film. I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was one of his best ones and I did enjoy it. But it was a film for me that the longer it went on and the more complex the shadowy plot got, the more it kind of lost me at times. And mm-hmm. I felt it, even though it was quite a short film, it was about an hour and 40 minutes, I think it was, I, I felt it kind of dragged a little towards the end. But I did like the ending. I thought it was quite thrilling. Uh, although very dated, obviously. Very special effects in that. Overall, I did enjoy it. It gave me really strong North by Northwest vibes. I found mm-hmm. it was a very similar film and plot and pacing and just all kind of set up of it, really. But yeah, I did enjoy it. I thought the I thought the actors were good. I don't think Hitchcock himself was particularly happy with the two leads. He's commented that he didn't think they were really right for the parts. But yeah, I enjoyed them. They were likeable uh, for a good chemistry. Mary, being a resident Hitchcock aficionado or expert or whatever what did you 
take from it? Obviously, you have seen this film a number of times, so what did you think of the film? Yeah, do you know, on watching it this time, Sammy, you're right, I think he wanted Gary Cooper for the lead. Um, I don't think he was particularly impressed with the kind of the two leads in general, although I actually quite like their chemistry together. Um, I think there's some moments of kind of light comedy throughout all of this actually as well. I do like this movie, you know, the way it starts and there's that kind of black plume of smoke that works its way across the screen and it's almost like they're trying to, you know, use a visual metaphor for fascism spreading throughout Europe and it's, it's, kind of it's not war propaganda but it's quite explicit and it's you know you do your duty for your country these are the bad guys although they're not officially named in any capacity or any political affiliations and there's a lot of allegory throughout you know the when the two leads meet up with the the circus troupe and that's clearly designed to be you know represent the other or people who are sort of on the fringes of society and yeah, huge North by Northwest vibes, you know, Barry Kane is, is the wrong man, they're in pursuit of the wrong man. And obviously not to give spoilers away, but yeah, the ending is very, very similar to a particular uh, scene in North by Northwest as well. And I think that Otto Kruger is excellent. You know, he starts off as this, you're like, oh, it's a wee grandpa playing with his wee grandchild next to this. And actually, you know, there's so much in this movie where it's, the person is not who you think they are and I and I do really like it I think it's a wee bit cheesy and on the nose at times because you know it's as you say it came out in 1942 and I do feel like there are some sort of you know we're the Americans we're the good guys but I kind of love all that sort of you know the policemen have their trousers up to here and they all talk about dames and broads and they've got the trilbies at the nice angle and I, I do quite like that element of it as well yeah it is very much as you say a kind of film of its time and it's became sort of cliched now the style of it but mm-hmm. well, I suppose you can look at it in a kind of way of hindsight. It does seem a bit more kind of amusing than it shouldn't be, but not in a bad yeah. way. Not like a, not in a not in a mocking kind of way. It's got a charm, a charm to it. You say the Americans are the the, the good guys in it, but they're all Americans in it. There is no one particular character who has a, a dodgy foreign accent in any way or acts as if they're Eastern European. They're all quite charming and polite in their own way all these american characters some i mean the the, the main female character who supports the the organ the, the bad guys organization she's sort of matronly almost you know so there's it's, it's not quite as cut and dried yeah no and i get that but i feel like they use costume to a certain extent to allude to these kind of the bad guys in inverted commas because you've got like the character of Friedman who walks about in a long black leather coat with the pencil thin moustache like tell me that's not an allusion to you know Germany at the time so I think they use they might not yeah they don't have the dodgy accents and stuff like that but I feel like they use other elements such as costuming to kind of set that up and yeah and and that's why it's so obvious when as I say they go into the the circus troupe vans and you're like okay these are clearly people who are on the fringes or they're maybe not as well off and whatever and I feel like that's the kind of dynamic they use to sort of set that up instead like I must admit when every time Efriman appears it does make me giggle because it's literally like the most ridiculous moustache and the long leather coat and I'm like okay we get it. Well, you probably, you probably know this, but in the original script, the bad guys were supposed to be the Germans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had not wanted to make it more vague. And I do like that, that you, you mentioned the kind of moustache and that. Um, but Otto Kruger, the only thing he's missing is literally twirling his moustache as he yeah. speaks. And it's good, but it's like, again, it's that kind of dated aspect where you've got these actors in it, and they're all Broadway actors. So they're used to acting a certain theatre way, which mm. does stick out like a sore thumb now when you watch these films back because you become so conditioned to how movie actors act 
Mm -hmm. It's a bit more melodramatic, yeah. It's a, it's it's more over the top, yeah. Yeah, that they're acting to the audience, not the camera, in a yeah. way. And but I like that. I like that style of acting. It's just like I say, you get conditioned to a certain way. It can be jarring at first, but it it works specifically well when it comes to bad guys. When villains do it, I love it. I'm totally invested in that. What did you think of the whole sort of road trip aspect of the film? Because as I mentioned at the top, he the main character Barry goes pretty much all over the country in search of the, the origins of this organisation and obviously trying to clear his name. So he seems to, it, it's almost like, well, in a way, it's, it's very like the 39 Steps, the main character in that, and handcuffs for part of it being chased across the country. So I, there's obviously elements of earlier Hitchcock in there as well, which is obviously something he uh, was quite always quite happy about doing. And we will no doubt come to that again when we're talking about our next film later on. But do you think that kind of element worked? I have a theory about that element anyway. That's obviously it's to show off the the breadth of America and how varied and different it is and how many different types of good guys. Because if you think about it, he meets up with the the kindly blind man. Hoop. I love the set. I love the setup for that. Like yeah. I love the setup for that. And of course, he's in handcuffs, and this blind guy's so astute and can pick up everything else. And when yeah. you know he's trying to stop him from clinking, like I, I love the whole setup of that. Yeah, it was obviously that. that. There was obviously the truck driver down to earth, salt of the earth, American. Yeah, just goes out, gets it done, happy with his lot. But if he if he manages to see an accident or something happen on the road, he gets all excited because it may be something to break up his day. And then obviously, as you mentioned, the circus troupe, which are normally regarded as freaks and outcasts, mm -hmm. but here they are regarded as patriots because they 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 help the downtrodden because Barry. And at that point, his soon-to-be girlfriend, which we'll touch on in a few minutes' time, because that was a, a bit of a jarring plot point. That seemed to sort of shout out to you, you know, we are America. And it was all sort of ordinary people. Well, there was abnormal, unordinary people, as obviously within the, the circus environment. But it was like the, the ordinary Joe, the sort of the down-to-earth intellectual who believes in the Constitution, but is quite happy to break it if is for the good of them good of americans and all this sort of stuff so what did you think about all that so i also thought that they used those pictures as well to display conflicting opinions of america and america entering the war so you obviously have some characters who are okay we'll help we'll help barry and pat and we'll, and we'll hide them whatever and, and we'll do whatever we can and you have others who are only too willing to to hand them over and very much believe in authority and you know the police and, and a hierarchy in that way so as much as I thought, yeah, they were used to show off, as you say, this kind of Americana, this kind of almost clumsy, you know, take a look at these working class people type of thing. I also thought they were used to actually demonstrate the different opinions, because you have to remember, you know, there was so many fascist societies for real in America at that time who were very much in support of leaving the Europeans to it and actually providing support and help to, to Germany because they thought, you know, Russia was the, the, the bigger threat. So I thought they kind of used these peripheral characters to display those different opinions that were actually going on in real time at the time. Mm -hmm, true. Obviously, one of the big things with Hitchcock films is his sense of style, his on-screen presence. Now, you get that at the start with some very dramatic opening credits, which are reasonably simply done. It's just use of light and shadow, that's all it is. Mm -hmm. And then, obviously, when the there's the scene where the fire starts in the factory, and that's very dramatic because it, yeah. it billows in from the side. What did you think of the way that 
Hitchcock sort of stamped his authority on the film in terms of the visuals. Thomas? I really liked um I thought the, the opening was quite shocking in a way. Uh, I thought that, as you were mentioning it earlier, maybe where the black smoke came in, was very dramatically done. And you had the fire. <laughs> it was just, I'm like, right, what's happening here? Because I went to the film fairly cold. And the guy runs towards a fire with the extinguisher and then just seems to die really quickly. And I was like, what happened there? I was just I was just quite shocked by it, the visual, visually especially. Obviously, the effects are dated to an extent and it's in black and white. There's a lot of things that's very much of its time. But I thought it still held up in its own way. I thought mm-hmm. it was visually very impressive. Yeah, he had a certain sort of kinetic energy about him in a lot of his early films. So it, it was quite a pacey film, which obviously tried to reinforce the theme of pursuit and everything, I thought, as well, because they, they wanted to keep it going. As you say, it's a, it's a reasonably quick film. It's an hour and 40 minutes. It doesn't really hang about. It goes from one scene to another to another, and it just it's, it's always following Barry as he is basically running. He's, he's always on the run as well. Uh, there was a couple of really nice touches as well with Priscilla Lane's character because she is a model in it. There was a couple of big billboards that they went past and they were quite present for the actual story itself, saying, like, you are being followed and things like that, which I thought was pretty good. The Well, this is going to be a difficult film to not spoil, so I think we might as well spoil some elements of it, especially to do with the last act. Now, the grand finale of it takes place at a national monument, which uh, ties in quite nicely with North by Northwest. But there was um, slight differences in this one, in that for the whole of that scene, there was absolutely no music at all. All you could hear was the foghorns from passing ferry boats and they, even they were in the background so you could actually hear the breath of people when they were struggling and things like that. Do you think that worked, Mary? Oh yeah, I mean I know the special effects have dated but I don't think the effect of the scene has dated. Like every time I watch this I'm like, because you can hear their foot slipping. Like though they obviously end up on this you know, quite famous landmark and they're struggling for grip and obviously they're in these ridiculous, you know, 1940s brogues, so not exactly like climbing shoes. And you can literally hear their foot sliding off the side. And as you say, you can hear their breath. And obviously there's a moment where you can actually start to hear like fabric rip and you can see the threads coming undone. I really think that scene holds up from a tension perspective, maybe not the special effects, but yeah, to this day, even still watching it, I'm like, oh, this makes me feel really nauseous because you can you can hear everything. And I think the lack of music is actually the best idea for that particular scene. I 100% agree. Uh, that scene is very, very well done and tense. And it's not a long scene either, but it drags out the, the right amount of time mm-hmm. to keep you hooked, but doesn't rip the arse from it to the point yeah. you're like, do it or don't. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's really effective. And... I didn't even notice there was a lack of music until you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. It definitely added to it. Yeah, there was a, a documentary on the, the DVD and it went into a wee bit of explanation about the final scene and some of the choices that were made. They were speaking to Norman Lloyd about it and he was asked, he was obviously quite a young actor at the time and he wasn't particularly well known in terms of film acting. So having this almost anonymous bad guy 
that he was chasing meant there was a sort of heightened tension because you didn't really know what was going to happen because if it was somebody well known then you'd expect something. It was like for instance if it was a if it was like somebody like Peter Laurie who was mm-hmm. playing the bad guy, then you get certainly expectations based on his previous film career. So you don't have that with Norman Lloyd. And Hitchcock said to him, obviously we're going to do this scene on top, <laughs> right up in the at the torch. So mm-hmm. we're, you know it's, it's going to be done up there. Can you do a backflip? And he said, "Yep, not a problem." Uh, and he says, "I've never done a backflip before, but you know, I was young, you know, it'd be okay." And they, they went on to explain how then obviously they cut that, and there was a a stuntman that actually fell from it. They actually recreated the whole torch part. Yeah, they rebuilt it. Yeah, yeah, uh, built it to scale, and uh, this stuntman did that in one take, actually, like falling down and grabbing in the the crook of uh, the crook between the the finger and the thumb, and what they did for. Uh, Norman Lloyd characters actually falling, which you see him all the way falling. It was the the reverse angle. The camera actually shot up to the ceiling, and he he said, "And there was me doing some balletic moves to <laughs> to pretend." <laughs> so yeah, it was it's quite innovative for its time. And like you say, yes, it doesn't totally stand up now because we have seen better use of CG. We've seen far worse you sort of effects as well but yeah i i thought it, it stood up particularly well and i did like the fact that there was a a, a choice not to have the you know that sort of stuff at the yeah. end you know i sort of avoid all that which you you see in numerous films around about the time they they tend to go big because it's the finale so everything rises everything gets bigger and you're supposed it's supposed to sweep up the audience but this way the audience is actually they're they're almost leaning in Absolutely. because what's what's going on you know they're they're having to work out what's happening they're not being told they're not being telegraphed anymore which is it's it's good because it has a bit of faith in your audience it's it, there's an assumption there that you are following the film and you're understanding what's going on so you know what the stakes are so therefore you don't need any outside influences to tell you what the final stakes are. Now, obviously, this was the first use of a national monument, which you went back to again later on, which I am sure we will get to at some point, but uh, we're not going to obviously discuss that today. So obviously, we've we've gone through the, the various elements of it, the people, the, the the fact that people in high society have dinner parties and yet yeah, are all really rotten people to begin with anyway. What were your overall thoughts Mary would you recommend this movie to our listener out there or is that what, what where would you regard it in terms of Hitchcock's oeuvre do you know it's it's not his best and I think like you know when we were talking last time you know you hold up Marnie against first of all Marnie, Marnie is always going to come off as the film that's not as good I don't want to say the worst film because that's not fair and I think when you look at this against the film we're going to talk about next yeah this is dated and it seems a bit cheesy but actually you know as an example of you know kind of audacious technical effects and keeping you on your toes because nothing and no one in this movie is necessarily what they appear to be and I think that's what's quite interesting as well I don't know the leads particularly well and as you said John there's no obvious signposting of this man always plays a villain so watch out or this man is always the hero so let's follow his journey and I do think it kind of keeps you on your toes I think don't get me wrong part of it does feel like you know a wee bit kind of American or ally propaganda which 
mm, kind of rubs me up the wrong way because I always thought Hitchcock was kind of above that sort of thing. But actually, as as a movie, yeah, it's enjoyable. As it is best, no. But I'd still encourage you to watch it because I just love Hitchcock movies. It's it's well set up. It's well paced, and the finale, as I say, you can oh, you can. It's making me feel sick just thinking about it. You can hear like feet scraping and hands. You can literally hear palms clasping together. I think is. As it works towards its finale it definitely gets better and yeah i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed watching it again yes, i thought um that you were going to say it rubbed you up the wrong way because of your nazi sympathies but uh, obviously not <laughs> <laughs> but did you see the angle that otto kruger wore his hat at though it was like charming <laughs> yeah yes i did a certain amount of style didn't they obviously thomas what did you think I enjoyed it overall. I, I did think it kind of dipped in the middle for me a little, and as the conspiracy and the plot kind of unfurled, I was like, right, it's kind of a bit too. Is it? I get it's this big complex plot, but it didn't have to for me come across like that. It almost is like telling me, here's this big complex plot. It was almost very, it was almost bundling esque in a way. Yeah. But without the self awareness. Mm-hmm. And that didn't work for me as much, but it redeemed itself at the end. I thought the climax was excellent. As you'll see, made as well. There's a lot of things in this film that uh, aren't really seem, and as a theme for the whole movie. And even regarding like Robert Cummins, is bad a kid. Robert Cummins was known more for comedy roles, and that's why the things Hitchcock went and said. They said it thought it was fine in the movie, but there was something too comical about his expressions and that. And I get that. But I didn't think it was a bad thing because again. It worked for the film because it's somebody else that something deceptive about him, but that's the point. Yeah. Point of the whole film, isn't it? Uh, I did find it a little kind of, I don't know if twee is the right word, but the fact is he's going across America. Everybody was just really nice for the most part and wanted to help him and believe his innocence. I'm like, come on, it's not one person's thinking, ah, maybe he's dodgy. Well, I know people did eventually, but it seemed for a long while everybody was quite happy just to take this young stranger in. <laughs> Yeah, well, you got that as well with the, the bad guys because at one point they obviously took him in because they thought yeah. he was fry. Now, without yeah. even like requiring a code word or anything, they just said, who are you? And they said, well, you know what, you're crap factory. There's a scene when um, Patricia tried to flag the car down and he drives up to her and drags it at the car and she's screaming, help me, help me. And this old couple just like, ah, kids, what do they like to do? <laughs> I'm like, my woman is being kidnapped. <laughs> I must admit, the one scene with Patricia that re- and, it, and it's still great to me to this day. Like she's meant to be like obviously, you know, and being sort of held captive or whatever. But she's still she's in the night dress. She's got the heels on. The hair's still done, and she just pulls out her lippy and writes a polite me like, "Oh, help me!" Floats it off out the window. Incredibly immaculate as a handwriting. I know with lipstick of all things. I know, but that's the one part of the film that kind of sticks in my throat a bit. You know, she's been held captive. She's stressed. She's maybe worried about her life and this guy that she's sort of taken up with. But no, the victory rolls are still perfect. She's still got the nightdress on, and she just writes this polite little message in lipstick. And as you say, in perfect handwriting, and just floats it gently out the window. Do you know about the really got me about that scene? I don't know why. It's a tiny detail, but not only does a guy go and get a milkshake, but he makes her pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, that's the fascist for you. <laughs> but he brought it back with a nap. He brought it back with a napkin, so that was nice. It was a more, it was a bizarre. It was a most like a highbrow kidnapper I've seen. Yeah. 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 
Overall, I enjoyed the film. I'd never seen it before. It was the first time that oh, I'd right. watched it. Even though, like Thomas, I had the box set for a number of years, probably over a decade, quite like yourself. I did enjoy it. The, the one element of it I didn't particularly like was the fact that they seemed to use bits of paper in order to progress the plot along because you had the envelope with Fry's name and address on it, which you just happened to drop. Then you had the telegram uh, that the baby gave him and that, like you say then there's the written the written stuff the, the only one that wasn't written down was when he was sitting in the car in new york with the two bad guys and they say and the guy in front says hey boss do you need me for the brooklyn job tomorrow you know <laughs> not, so not that, the brightest, yeah. <laughs> yeah so so the whole kind of plot was telegraphed in that way he didn't really need to find anything out he just needed to be in the right place at the right time in order to read something or hear something so that kind of it wasn't great that way but I enjoyed it in terms of the, the spectacle of it, the final act, yeah. some of the acting. I, I did enjoy the, the, the main performance as well and showing off different types of people and the, the way that the main female lead went from, I'm going to report you to the cops to, oh my, you're so, you're so handsome, you know, in the space of about 10 minutes, you know, when she fit, when, she only believed him when the bad guys said that he, he didn't do it. And there was a sudden realisation. What? You mean he, he's innocent? He's not? Well, you know, and he'd only been telling her that for about an hour at that point. So, yeah. uh, Again, it, there is a kind of updated thing, isn't there, with the way women are treated in the film. And yeah. I mean, we could do, you could do an entire podcast and that would come such quite, let's be honest. But it's even the scene of the ball in the dance when he dances with the random women. And she's just so overly, like... Thank you for dancing with me. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope we dance again. I'm like, I won't even see you again in this movie. <laughs> but a lot of things to be put on the side. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, as he gently puts her down in a chair afterwards, like just discarded, <laughs> like, done with you. Next. <laughs> and, oh. and part of me wonders how much of that is Hitchcock and how much of that is like forced studio because you know the because the thing is romance movies you know or like even within spy thrillers like the romance element would always sell and i just wonder how much of that is studio and how much of that is just like hitchcock think that's how women are i don't know (laughs) (laughs) you get a big impression hitchcock was kind of like women will be like if i tell them to be like (laughs) yeah So overall, we seem to enjoy the film, which is obviously good. It's by no means a a bad film, which I think you can pretty much say the same for most Hitchcock films. So, can I just say one one more thing before we? Of course, you can. Yes, don't go. Yeah, we mentioned that North by Northwest, and I think North by Northwest is a much better movie. And in in many ways, it's almost like a trial run for it. Like I don't know if North by Northwest would have been as good if it wasn't for this film. He managed to get that more right, and I think it's because he learned from this. Yeah, yeah, he did use elements again. Like I said, he used elements again and again, and he usually got better at them. Mm-hmm. He used them in different ways, and he improved on them. Definitely did. There are a number of things that he did in terms of like scene setting, using theatres, for instance. They seem to feature quite a lot in his films, using monuments, using spectacle. You're right. You're totally right on that. Yeah. Okay. Right. So following on from Saboteur. So following on from our discussion of Saboteur, we turn our attention to the second of the Hitchcock films for today, which is the 1966 film Torn Curtain. Paul Newman and Julie Andrews find love in danger and danger in love. 
when they venture behind Alfred Hitchcock's torn curtain. Now you stay away from me. Don't talk to me. When this plane lands, you take the next one out. Anywhere. Go home. But she had to know what was happening to the man she loved. All right. What would you like me to do? I'll be back in time for the wedding. In two months? Uh, yeah. Or three? Yeah. Michael, you certainly know how to make a girl feel wanted. The film stars Paul Newman and Julie Andrews in a political thriller which sees an American scientist attending a conference in Copenhagen, as they tend to call it actually in the film, and then expressing his desire to defect to East Germany in order to work on their rocket program, the Gamma 5 program. Now, this film was a change in direction for Hitchcock in a number of ways. The film was the first that he did without long-term collaborators Robert Burks, the cinematographer, editor George Tomasini, and quite famously, it was the first film that he did not use Bernard Herrmann's score for. Herrmann started a score for it and was fired during production. So there were an awful lot of changes with this film. And I think I would like to find out what you guys thought of this in terms of did these changes actually affect the film? So, Mary, what were your initial thoughts on the Cold War thriller Torn Curtain? So, I have, I don't know how, because I've watched this box a million times, I've never seen Torn Curtain. And can I just say I'm now obsessed with it? Like, utterly obsessed. Like, it's a proper, old fashioned, you know, furtive glances across a room, you know, men chasing each other in corridors. It's a proper spy thriller. And like Saboteur, the war that it's dealing with is actually happening at that time. I thought Paul Newman, I mean, I'm in love with Paul Newman, but Paul Newman was just excellent in that there's like, he's not he's not sort of playing the sort of charismatic sort of pretty boy. He does genuinely seem under pressure and stressed and tense. And I loved it. Do you miss, the, did, did I miss those the particular changes that have been made? I think the music... I think the music's a big one, but actually in terms of the way the film is paced, no, I don't think I missed anything. And the cinematography at times is absolutely lush. I'm not sure how much we're going to talk about because it's a really hard film to talk about without spoiling it. But all I will say is that the tension throughout was definitely sustained and there were so many moments where I, I actually just kind of held my breath. And for the last 15 minutes in particular, I don't think I exhaled once. I loved this movie, loved it. Thomas. Yeah, I really enjoyed this as well. I hadn't seen it before until the other day. And I watched this before Saboteur. And it was interesting because I, f- I watched this and I really enjoyed it. And I was watching Saboteur. The first half hour anyway, I was thinking, Judo Tom Curtains is a better film. I'm probably enjoying this more. But as I finished both films, let them digest. This was a superior film for me uh, in many ways. You mentioned Paul Newman. He is excellent in this film. So is Julie Andrews. Everybody is, to be fair. But I just love Paul Newman's character and the way he plays it. And he's not this overtly tough, masculine, macho-style character. And he shouldn't be either because he's a fucking scientist. (laughs) (laughs) It's like everything I think in this film is so underplayed in a way. Even Mm -hmm. the chase scene at the end isn't this big cinematic, action-packed finale. It's just this really underlying tension mm-hmm. that grips you. And 
I just think it's so cleverly done. Yeah. And it's hard to say bits without spoiling it. But there is real dramatic scenes in it that, again, aren't over the top because I can't, and I can't even mention it if it's spoiling it. I can't, I can't even think I'm about mention it. Just go ahead and mention yeah. it because it's, it's a film that was made, what, four or five decades ago. So, yeah, I think, yeah. I think we'll be all right. It's been this, it's been the scientist realizes he's, he's he's at it. He's like, you're going to stay here while I phone I phone authorities, and he just doesn't. He just leaves the room, and you're like, well, of course you went to this guy. He just leaves the room, and I thought, yeah, kind of makes sense in a way. But just even things like that, the fact that the scientist isn't like attacking them and trying to like restrain them was this big uh-huh. thing. Everything's just so underplayed, and it's, it's great for it. And it, I think it really adds to the tension in a way that it wouldn't be if it was a action spy thriller. Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, to me, I think it is. Like, I mean, there's some really beautiful framing. There's a scene where the character of Michael and Sarah first arrive at the Hotel Berlin, and Julie Andrews is at the far left of the screen just looking out the window, and she just takes up that one tiny bit of space and Paul Newman takes up the entire rest of the frame because he's pacing back and forward and he's all over the place and he's and there were some really beautiful moments where if you just sit and watch them you're like this is this is cracking this is amazing cinema it's so good to watch and as you say it doesn't have to be this over the top kind of struggle or you know big shootouts or like crazy chases through you know East Berlin or whatever and there's there's just so much the, the scene that is a spoiler, but there's the scene where Paul Newman's character is walking through the museum and the floor is like checkered. So it's literally like this massive game of chess. And all you hear is like footstep, footstep, silence, footstep, footstep. And you're like, oh my God, he's been followed. And there's no, again, no music. They're just using the floor. And this, oh, the cinematography is incredible. The sound is incredible. And it's just. I don't know what I was expecting. I kind of thought it was going to be more kitsch. But actually, as you say, Thomas, it's so underplayed. And even Julie Andrews, who apparently Hitchcock didn't like because he just kept expecting her to burst into song, which is a bit of an unfair comment to make. But even her character, you know, she's not like this sort of doe-eyed, oh, no, what's, ha- what's going to happen to me? She's quite resilient and quite strong and just, oh, I just loved it. I loved and- it. Regarding Joe Andrews there, you're right about that, and she's so I think, she's so, I think the character's really strong, mm-hmm. and her performance is as well, and there's a scene on the plane near the beginning when they're going to East Germany, she seems like, she's like us, the audience, she seems like the only sane person in the movie at that point, we have no idea what's going on, and now does she, and she's a good conduit for that, because she's just questioning everything, like you mm-hmm. would do, she's not like, Okay, I'm going to slink in the background in the shadows. And hey, she's like, What are you doing? What is going on? <laughs> I am your fiance. You need to tell me these things. What's happening? Why are we in East Germany? And it's yeah. not hysterical, though. It's a very realistic way you would ask these questions. Yeah, but also asking those questions in the surroundings that you're in, because obviously. Oh, yeah. You know, East Germany at the time, like a big explosion of emotion would be really noticeable because everything was very, you know, subdued and hush hush. And what I like about her and Michael's characters is often when they're with sort of East German, I don't know what you would call them, like politicians or police or whoever you know they are. Yeah. Um, there, there's no German subtitles, so we're in the same boat as them. We're sitting going, "Have they worked out what's going on? What's happening?" What's, uh, but again, it's all through eye contact and just sort of subtle moves of the head because any sort of outlandish, over the top emotion would straight away just mark you as suspicious. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, I mean, it's portrayal of East Germany at that time is very much a kind of case. It's not this like 1984 
over uh, um, in your face idea. People just go about their days as normal. There's like guys going to work. There's everything's just like how the city was, you know. But there's always that over, uh, always that um, threat of you could just be taken away at any point here in the film, and that really adds to the tension because you've got like Julie Andrews walking about. She's saying she's she's standing out, and the villains are kind of getting a bit pissed, <laughs> a bit annoyed with her, and you just keep thinking to yourself, "Women, shush." <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that in a kind of sexist way, I just mean in a kind of sense that she is the only female in the in the in the place at this bit. And she yeah. stands up for that as well. But she, like I said, she's the most she's a rational, logical person there because she is doing what we're asking, what we want to know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're like, it's this can't end well for you because nobody's you shouldn't be acting like this. You could ruin all this. I imagine for audiences at the time with Paul Newman being famous for the type of roles that he was, to actually the first, you know, opening minutes of this film where you're just like uh, what the fuck he's defecting like from you know this western lifestyle and everything or you know signed to the access that he has you know all the secrets that he has in his head and I think that must have been quite shocking as well because there was a very real cold war going on at the time and to have somebody who's such a American icon of cinema to be playing this defector I think must have been pretty shocking. Oh, definitely. What did you think of the chemistry between the two leads? Now initially I thought it was pretty bad. i didn't, I didn't think that they had any sort of real chemistry whatsoever. But in the context of the movie, it was appropriate because all during the sort of the first act, he is trying to distance himself from her. He didn't want her to be on the cruise. He didn't want her to be at the conference. He certainly didn't want her to be on the plane. So in a way, he's almost trying to put her off. Obviously, the, the opening scene is some... Uh, under a pile of coats in bed together. And that's quite intimate and is uh, one of Hitchcock's trademark extreme close-up kisses, which didn't fall on from Marnie and go down the other side of the face. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you've been seen that with Marnie, Tommy. There's, a, there's a, a kiss in Marnie where basically Sean Connery works his, his lips all down one side of uh, Tippy Hedren's face before kissing her. And I thought that just as a sort of a... An opposite, they would go the other way, or maybe it could go up the way. I don't know, you know, but then <laughs> sensors and all that. <laughs> I I thought there was a, a lack of chemistry, and initially I put that down to the fact that I thought Julie Andrews was a wee bit miscast in this role. But on the based on the fact that up until that point her popularity was for the likes of The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins. She just come off the back of Mary Poppins as well, so therefore she was a big star. Like say Mary. <laughs> Some people were expecting her to actually, you know, chip in with a wee East German ditty with some local children at one point. But but she got better. Yeah, like you say, she was the sort of grounding point for the film. She was the, the audience proxy, I feel like. And that was kind of brought into focus very well on the plane. There was a, a beautiful reverse tracking shot, which starts at Paul Newman and then it works its way down the aisle past the flight attendant and then... You, you find out that she's actually on the flight, and that's that's done really, really well. It was that was a cracking kind of shot. I, I really liked that. But what did you guys think of the chemistry between them? Do you know, I didn't really think about it until you mentioned it there, and yeah, I, again, I didn't really notice the kind of lack of it. Thinking back about it, you're right. The scenes on the plane and that, and when I first get to to East Germany, that it does make sense that there be a, a lack of chemistry because of the way Paul Newman's trying to play. His role, 
Mm-hmm. I don't know, that didn't really bother me because I, I really like both characters and their roles. Um, Paul Newman's just great in this. I absolutely loved them. I had great chemistry for Paul Newman in this film. <laughs> watching him. Um, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't really notice it before. I even think about it, apart from what you were saying about the kind of lack of it with how he played it. For, for the tension, yeah, didn't really bother me. No, I actually completely agree with you, John, and I also wondered if it was down to, but this is just me, because I now read sexism into everything that Hitchcock has produced, I actually wondered if it was because the power dynamic was off, because he is the scientist and she is frequently referred to as the assistant. Yes. All of this, but not in a not in a complimentary way, in a completely derogatory way, she's referred to as the assistant. So I also wondered if, if, if it was something to do with their working relationship or their power dynamic, but you're right, you know, he's trying to basically bugger off and leave her so that's why he is acting quite you know distant towards her but actually as as the film progressed I thought you know they're quite well matched she is this as you say she's the audience proxy but as a character I would say she's quite strong-willed she's quite resilient she's quite sharp talking at times when she needs to be as well and yeah I thought they played quite nicely off each other but I I, I agree at the beginning I, I was kind of like oh these two don't really match together and this is a bit do you I, know, I Hitchcock thought she was miscast, but actually, you're right, it's all part of the bigger plot. I did I did think that at the beginning as well, but you just right at the beginning, and especially when not long into the film, it just it's, it's telling you she's the assistant. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, is that appropriate? <laughs> is that really <laughs> appropriate? So that's the first thing I thought of. And I was surprised as the film went on to how strong the relationship was, because for me it was setting it up as a fling more than mm-hmm lovers to that degree but yeah overall it didn't really bother me but did you know Julie Andrews is an Aquaman what? yes yeah I knew that yeah mm-hmm. I haven't seen as what she does a voice of uh underwater god I thought, you were gonna say, I thought you were gonna say a fish or something I don't know why and I was like what the fuck not far off really yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. pretty close yeah old monster it was the last time I watched it, I realised on the end of the credits, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's a bit mental. She's not made enough money at Mary Poppins in the sign of music. Is, is she doing a campaign? <laughs> she's got another house to pay for or something? Or <laughs> The fact that she started all of the fact she's still working, she's got a film coming out next year. She's got a series coming on to Netflix on Christmas Day, Bridgerton. Right. It's almost mm-hmm. like Gossip Girl meets Pride and Prejudice and she's sort of doing the narration. I love that. Well, that's the Shonda Rhimes thing, isn't mm-hmm. it? First thing in her big deal, that's right. Yeah, remember reading about that. Okay, back to the movie. Now, no, 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 not at all. As always with Hitchcock films, there are a number of very interesting supporting characters. Now, the sort of main supporting character in this one is the East German guard, Gromick, who on the face of it is a bit of a buffoon to begin with because he is a says really rather stupid things, for for want of another phrase, about (laughs) it it really made me laugh because he talked about uh, a pizza parlour on 88th 88th Street in New York. Do you know it? And that's the kind of thing that you get. If you ever go somewhere on holiday that's reasonably far away from Scotland, if you ever go to Australia, which I have been to, and I did actually get asked this question when I was in Australia. Oh, you're, you're from Scotland. You 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 must know uh, Jean from Kirkcaldy. <laughs> <laughs> which is that kind of question um, so on the face of it he was a bit of a buffoon but he more than proved his worth 
as a, a bad guy in the way that he was able to track Michael when he tried to give him the slip. Now, part of that is down to the fact that Michael was a rubbish spy yeah. because if you're going to walk through a big tiled <laughs> museum come art gallery, you're going to wear uh, rubber-soled shoes because <laughs> rather than something with sex in it. Uh, and then, obviously, he tracked him down to where he was going to. And, obviously, I, I would like to speak about what happens after that. Then. But sure. that character itself, I thought, was a, a particularly good one because it, it was quite surprising in a way. He wasn't as straightforward as you were initially led to believe. He was introduced with another, char another character who had a big scar just above his eye, and you thought these were just going to be typical Eastern European goons, but he did not turn out to be that way at all. No, and for me, I thought the buffoonery was an act. I thought everything was just, again, I kind of thought, like, almost the reverse, he thought they were stupid Americans, so he yeah. put on this kind of buffoonish act, but actually, in scenes that follow, when he talks about, you know, I, I went to night school and all this stuff, you realise this guy is fucking laser sharp, and you could literally bury yourself in the earth somewhere, and he would find you, like, he's, yeah, I felt like this, they're presented, again, in the, in the black leather jackets and all that sort of thing, they're presented as these kind of oafish characters, but actually... Yeah, very, very clever and very and much more astute than, as you say, Paul Newman, because he's a bit of a bit of a rubbish spy. Which is mm -hmm. fine because he's a scientist. Yeah, I think it's like a, um, he's not he's not supposed to be this James Bond style super spy who's really tough and it, and that that makes it work for the movie. As we've, as we've mentioned earlier, the, the the lack of the action makes it more tense rather than it being this um, spectacle of a movie. So obviously, following on, or oh, sorry, did you have something else? No, no, I'm just saying it's quite thrilling in that aspect. Yep. You touched on the fact that the the thrills are all very subdued. Now, there is a scene in the middle of the film where Gromick has tracked Michael down to a farmhouse, and Michael's meeting up with <laughs> the, the character there as well, the, the guy in the tractor. That was cracking. Uh, with the big moustache and the... Uh, it was like a Texas accent or something like that. It was something quite bizarre that you wouldn't hear in East Germany whatsoever. But anyway, we go past that. Gromick finds him, basically works out without much problem, works out that he is actually a spy because he's written pie in, <laughs> in the dirt outside the house and then not rubbed it out. You know, spycraft, mate, come on. Basically, I think, that's like, I think that's like first class, uh, the first class that you go to in spy school, you know, rub out the messages you've left behind, but he yeah. obviously must have missed that day, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't uh, take the toilet paper that he wrote down the initial word on with him. Just, oh, I'll keep this in my pocket in case I forget it later on, you know. I'm only a scientist, I remember things, but I wouldn't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, there's a confrontation scene where Gromick figures out Michael is a spy, and a struggle ensues, and Michael and the woman who is actually living in the farmhouse basically murder this guy. And it's horrific. Yeah. It's done without any sound. It takes about three, four minutes in order to do the scene. The, the woman uses pretty much everything that's to hand in order to attack him. She throws a pot at him. She stabs him with a, a very poorly made East German knife which snaps <laughs> off. <laughs> and then as the pièce de résistance 
they stick his head in the oven and gas him. Now, this was a horrible scene. This was yeah. absolutely horrible. I could see why they did it that way because Michael's a scientist. He doesn't know how he kills somebody. The woman, although she's part of this secret spy organization, which they, they mention it again and again, they're, they're not a, a political organization. They're not a violent organization. So she won't know how to do it either. So therefore, it's clumsy, everything that, oh. they, 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 everything that happens. And it, it really obviously takes a, a toll on both of them. Now, I, I, was, I was completely horrified by this. It just, it's, it's so unexpected in a film like this. Yeah, yeah. I was just, um, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I, I read that Hitchcock wanted to, apparently he was really sickened by like spy films where you can kill someone in like two seconds just by like, you know, pushing your elbow down on their throat. And he wanted to show that actually murdering someone is very difficult, especially if you don't know what you're doing and it's grubby and it's messy and it takes time. And as you say, John, see when they finally just dragged his body over and she turned those taps on, I was like, okay, this is a bit much this is getting a bit and they just shove his head right i was like this is oh, i mean she's taking a bloody shovel to his knees and you see them snap backwards and you're just like is this going to stop because the thing is gromick obviously i don't know what how what kind of training the stasi went through but he seems game for them you know he's bigger than than paul newman and this woman put together so you know she stabbed him in the collarbone but as you say the poor craftsmanship means the knife snaps off and he just sort of shrugs them back off and he's ready to fight again it's, it is so oh it's i don't know the word cringy isn't what i'm looking for but do you know what i mean like you can't quite look at it but you can't stop looking at it and it's it's messy and it's dirty and it's just Oh, it's, yeah, I mean, a stunning bit of, like, you know, choreography and everything that, that went into it, but really difficult to watch. Yeah, and just saying, it's like, Michael doesn't have a clue how to kill anybody. He's not a, uh, some James Bond super spy. He's just a scientist that's trying to help his country. But it's been a, a grab Gromek, and Gromek's like, yeah, you made a mistake here because yeah. I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill her. I'm going to kill everybody because yeah. I am a really good spy. And then he just said it just drives away. But the shovel scene, it's like she hits him with the shovel, but he doesn't fall down. It's just she hits him again. You're like, oh my God. <laughs> and that's what makes yeah. it even worse because you're watching this and you watch all these other films and like the bad guy's getting killed and that and you're cheering. But with this, you're like, oh, just please put him out his misery. I know you're like, make it stop. I know either just let him walk away or, you know, not that he could walk away with his broken kneecaps, but just like either finish it or don't. Yeah. You're, you're no point in rooting for him, but you're like, you, don't, you feel sorry for him. Like, <laughs> and it's a surprisingly, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a gory scene or anything, but it's graphic in its own way. Mm-hmm. It's graphic about being exploitative in a, in, a, in a strange way. It's not got this exaggerated gore or anything. It's just it's just really drawn out, and yeah. it just it makes sense the fact that it wants to show how difficult it is to kill someone. Well, it certainly does that. Yeah. And even when they do kill them, they kind of look at each other and they're kind of exhausted, and you see the look of regret in their face. Like we've just killed somebody, uh-huh. even though it was a fight for a life. It's not kind of yes, we have killed somebody. Now I'm gonna have a cigarette. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's. It's a very sobering scene. Yeah, totally. Going back to the the sympathies 
that you just mentioned there, there was a, a scene which was actually cut from the film, which had Michael visiting a factory later on in the film. It's just before he went on the run. And in the factory was Gromick's older brother, which was played by the same character, except with greyer hair and glasses. And the this character talks about his brother in sort of very flowery terms and what a nice guy, showing photos of his family, showing that Gromick had children and all this sort of stuff. But then they had to cut that scene because it made Michael look like a really bad guy then. This, all the sympathies went to the guy that he murdered rather than him because when you actually look at his reasons for doing everything, it's to get secret plans for a rocket. It's it's not it's not like really a noble undertaking. Mm-hmm. It's to further the American nuclear arms race, if you like, rather rather than anything else. It's it's one upmanship. He's not doing it for any sort of national reasons that you could sort of say, yeah, well, it was probably justified. It's not really. It's just this. You know nu- the nuclear option that the, both countries were chasing at that time. So it kind of it would have shifted the audience away from mm-hmm. actually rooting for Michael as a character. And probably you would take, you would probably be looking at his assistant then, saying, "Well, why the hell is she with him?" In that sort of instance. So it didn't really sort of sit with the rest of the movie. So therefore, they, they chopped it out. So you would still be quite happy following the. Imperial American <laughs> in his in his pursuit of uh, lies. <laughs> so there were a number of Hitchcock elements in this film. Films it, you could you could watch this film w- without knowing it was an Alfred Hitchcock film, or be, being told it was an Alfred Hitchcock film, and really within maybe about 15, 20 minutes, you would say, "Yep, I know who directed this." What did you think of those sort of elements? I'm thinking here in terms of the scenery and obviously there was the likes of the music and all that as well as the the acting itself. What did you think about those various elements of the movie? Yeah, I like that. I mean, it's as you, as you say, it's the same as Avatar as well. You can watch a Hitchcock film and you just know it's a Hitchcock film. And what makes it interesting with us as well is that Paul Newman did Clash with Hitchcock regarding it because he came from a different generation of actors that weren't of Hitchcock's... Well, Hitchcock had a certain generation of actors and Paul Newman was, didn't fit that mould. So they clashed quite a lot in set and I don't think they really... I, don't, well, I think Paul Newman didn't dislike Hitchcock, but Hitchcock for Paul Newman was being quite disrespectful with the question he was asking. And one of the questions he asked, like, what's my motivation for the character? And they replied, just salary. And... <laughs> um, well, that's a totally Hitchcock response. You know, there's the famous quote about yeah. Castle and stuff like that. I think he wanted Cary Grant to play mm. the role of Michael, but Cary Grant said he was too old and he'd retired and stuff like that. But, I mean, you can see Paul Newman being a wee bit more, as you see, of a challenge, that new kind of generation, and maybe not just saying, like, not that Cary Grant was like, you know, yes, sir, please, sir, thank you so much, sir. Like, I don't think he was ever like that either, but, yeah, probably more a wee bit kind of wild and a wee bit more of a challenge, I guess. Yeah, and the reason, the reason I mentioned that, as you were saying, John, that kind of develops too much, but there is these Hitchcock-isms in the film. Mm-hmm. But there's also this new cinema feel in regards to the the actor, especially the lead actor, Paul Newman, because he has tried to bring something different yeah. as the film is evolving through the years. Yeah, there was obviously the, the Hitchcock scene itself, where you know he has his usual cameo, and normally 
you have to kind of look out for it. But in this one, Hitchcock was sitting in the lobby of the hotel with a child on him. And when it, the camera went on to that scene, the film music composer actually put in a bit of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents music just to emphasise the fact that, look, look, there he's there, which I, which I thought was awful. I thought that was absolutely dreadful, which kind of moves me on to the music itself because I, I didn't like the music in this film whatsoever. I thought it was intrusive in the way that it was used. They, and it was overly melodramatic as well for the, the type of film it was. This was meant to be a, a Cold War thriller, and yet you had scenes, especially the, the scene that you mentioned earlier, where two main characters are having a conversation in a, a room, and the Julie Andrews character is static in mm-hmm. one corner of it, and Paul Newman characters moving about. Now, there was this swirling music going on, and it so detracted from the film. It was just so didn't seem to work. I mean, this, this isn't a this is a film composer that's won Oscars and everything. It's not just somebody they brought in last minute, somebody that knows what they're doing. But it just didn't seem to work for me whatsoever. It didn't have the sort of required tension to it. It didn't complement the scenes. It kind of intruded in the scenes as far as I was concerned. Yeah, and there's a kind of similar scene where Paul Newman takes Julie Andrews, you know, like a few metres away from the bad guys and yet they can't hear a word they're saying. And she goes, it's bizarre because it really stands out from the rest of the film because she goes into like soft focus and she does become really doughy eyed and there's tears and the music again is this kind of over the top sort of like you think you're watching a romance movie and that scene in particular kind of stuck in my throat and I was like, huh? Is this DVD swapped to something like, what the fuck am I watching? Because it just didn't fit in. But I actually felt there was a number of inconsistencies. So there's the scene where Paul Newman's on the nurse's bed and he sort of flips around and the shirt's open and he's almost like posing. I was like, again, this is weird. And then there's the character that comes in right at the very end, the Polish countess. And she's like dressed in feathers and she's over the top and she's really colourful. And she tells this ludicrous over the top story and just starts bawling her eyes out crying. And there was a few kind of moments in this film and the, the Hitchcock appearances as part of that where they just kind of, I was like, huh? Because it didn't make, for, for a movie that I totally loved and really, really enjoyed, those are the kind of four main bits that I just thought, this is weird and doesn't make sense to the rest of the movie. The sub- it was quite, you know, inconsistent, you know? Yeah, the subplot with the Countess I thought was strange because it didn't really go anywhere. Mm. Uh, it was very unsatisfying and unresolved. Mm-hmm overly dramatic character to not have any resolution where it was just kind of like, well, did we really need that scene? Yeah, I didn't get it at all because she was looking for a way out yeah. of East Germany. She's looking for a sponsor and she was saying, well, you could sponsor me, except he's a wanted criminal in East Germany. So he's not exactly... The East German authorities are going to go, oh, yeah, I, I know who this guy is. He's a spy, but if he's sponsoring her... There's a way does help him can escape and she's crying and she realised that she's going to be stuck in, in East Germany and I'm like, I feel sorry for this character now who just spent the film five minutes ago mm-hmm. and we're going to get in, we're going to go back to it at the point, oh no we're not, so she's still just trapped there, there's, there's no point there. and you can mention the soft focus aspects and that, it was almost like Hitchcock, to go back to your point John, kept trying to get his shit in, in a way. It was like, um, right, I want to put in my trademarks. It's not working in the film. Yeah. So I'm Hitchcock. 
I am known for doing stuff like this. I'm going to make sure it's in the film. And if you shoehorn and fits in, as you're saying, made as well, it makes it quite jarring in an inconsistent way, unfortunately. Uh, this, this film, as much as I really enjoyed it, and I thought it was great, it could have done with some editing that cut the runtime down and took all that stuff out that just didn't work. Yeah, there's a, f- a few wee bits that I, I thought were not, there was a, a, a kind of a lack of consistency. If you think about it, when they, they went to East Germany on the plane, it was a very last minute thing. And yet Julie Andrews seemed to have about 17 different outfits to wear while she was there. And Paul Newman had a couple of different suits and all that. I'm not saying they weren't nice. It was obviously Edith Head that did all the, the costumes, which was great. But I, I thought it, it was particularly telling when they were about to make or try to make their escape. And uh, they were told, you know, meet, meet us at 10 o'clock, no baggage. And I thought, well, that's probably just as well, because they, they would need a second bus just for all the baggage that they were going to have to bring with them. I cannot go any further without mentioning Julie Andrews here. What, yes. what the fuck was that all about? <laughs> oh, that was like a... <laughs> it was like a granny perm. What, what, what was that? It, it, was, it actually yeah. looks worse than uh, Gillian Anderson playing Maggie Thatcher in the crowd <laughs> just now. It's fucking ro- like they did her dirty on that. It is rotten. But again, like this, like it was almost like they were making her sort of like mumsy because even the costumes were like, you know, they were like olive green or grey. And I get that they were maybe trying to blend into East Berlin, but they made her look really like granny ish and. Yeah, and Paul Newman sitting there with the shirt open on the nurses' table, as I said, like totally. And I'm like, how are? They? Yeah, it, it was bizarre, but I, I really, I did really enjoy this film. And as I say, I absolutely loved it. And there were so many moments where I totally held my breath. But now that we're talking about it, I'm like, there's so much stuff in it. It's like fucking ridiculous. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that. I did notice it when I was watching the film, and I'm watching it going. It's Paul Newman and Julie Andrews. And Julie Andrews is obviously uh, one of the leads in this movie. But it's quite central of his art. You've missing her hair. I'm thinking, I don't think she's going to be in this film for much longer. Because I can't see that person surviving to our runtime. I don't think I've thing to say, but that's, that's how noticeable it was. No, there was a bit where it's when she was in East Germany and she was obviously on her own in her hotel room in the there's a knock at the door and she always, oh, oh, you know, just a moment plays and gaps and put, puts on this beautiful long uh, dressing gown and then sort of tries to do something over here and you go, nah, it's not going to cut it, love. I'm sorry. That's... <laughs> You'll need a wee bit more time. <laughs> but yeah, you, you do, you mentioned that the... <laughs> you <laughs> 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 the granny pen type idea and you're like, how old is she, is she supposed to be in this film? Yeah, um, I know. You do you can cast it with Paul Newman, who is so sharp looking. She looks like a catalogue. And the thing is, her costumes are beautiful, apart from the colours, which are very, very drab. Like, her costumes are beautiful. But yeah, like, did Hitchcock just really not like her and went, see that fucking wig? Get that stuck on her. That's her punishment. That's what it feels like, doesn't it? It almost feels like um, he's been a dick. Mm-hmm. And it's like people are just going to think of you as the musical star. I'm going to show them. I don't know if it was to show that she was like, I, I'm using the word dowdy and I feel really bad for doing it, but I don't know if it was because she was meant to be like, I know she was the assistant, but she was clear, you know, clearly like 
you know, she knew her stuff about the scientific side of things. I don't know if it, I don't know if it was to show that she was a scientist and therefore unbothered about her appearance. I don't know. I, I actually think it was because he didn't want her in the role. Because if you if you think about some of the other main Hitchcock female leads, they're like for instance Marnie was a thief and she's mm-hmm. supposed to just blend into the background and be a sort of nobody, but at no point during that film is her character anything other than glamorous, no oh, matter yeah. what what hair colour she's got, what clothes she's wearing, you know. So yeah, I, I do think it was probably deliberate, unfortunately. I missed the last podcast. We were talking about Hitchcock, and I've I've seen my fair share of Hitchcock movies, just not that box set. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, Window, Love Psycho is one of my favourite films ever. Uh, big fan of Vertical. Eventually, I didn't like it the first time. Second time, blew me away. But doing the research for this podcast for these two movies, Hitchcock had issues with the cast in both films. Is this a common theme he has in his movies where he doesn't like who he casts? So. He had an issue, he blamed the lack of commercial success for of Vertigo on Jimmy Stewart being too old for Kim Novak. But actually, do you know what I'm just thinking, John? There's the character of Midge, again, who's like the plain friend with the bad hair in Vertigo as well. And I do and this is why I'm like, is it just to signify that she's not I know she's meant to be his love interest, but she's never there it's not a romantic relationship, it's a scientific mm-hmm. relationship and they're on the run together. Is that why she's plain looking? Because again, when I was watching it, her costumes for all that they were very you know, beautifully crafted, she was blended into the, you know, brutalist architecture in the background because everything was so grey and drab. And I thought is it just because she's a scientist or, as you say, is it just, you know, Hitchcock absolutely doing her dirty because he didn't like her? I mm. genuinely think it is the latter. I think he's having a joke. It's strange. <laughs> but, well, apparently she was very expensive. So I don't know if it was like, well, you were so expensive, there's no money left for wigs. <laughs> there's actually a, a website I found um, with people discussing the haircut in this movie. I'll send you the link. Tremendous. It's under She's barely turned 30 in this movie. She's got the haircut of a 70-year-old woman. I was gonna say there's wee grannies cutting about Glasgow with more modern haircuts. Yes, uh, and leopard print as well, but yes, let's not let's not go too far into that. Yeah. So in keeping with the sort of the themes of the film and everything been sort of downplayed, the the finale was kind of downplayed. It started with them taking to bicycles. <laughs> and a various, which I, was also a very easy escape from a building which apparently had been locked down. They basically just had to go down another set of stairs and then hop on three bicycles that just happened to be there. <laughs> um, and then it was obviously a bicycle and then it was a bus and the, the, the greatest tension in the whole sort of bus scene, which maybe about 15 minutes, I think, they were mm-hmm. on this bus, was the fact that there was another bus catching up to them. It's been, I actually thought that was a dig at like, do you know how they're, they always say like German public transport is really efficient and runs on time? I was wondering if they were trying to like sort of poke a joke at that or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I actually thought the finale was really, I mean, I was thought it was quite tense. I thought, you know, yeah. they go to the, but I yeah, get I'm what you're saying. It's slightly ridiculous. Yeah. I'm not saying that it wasn't good. I'm just saying it was a complete contrast to the likes of Saboteur where mm-hmm. it, was, it was very short, as Thomas mentioned earlier, and it was very dramatic because there was it was short, there was no music, it was set somewhere very recognisable, whereas this was, it, it was slightly more meandering, it took longer, there was a, I mean, there was people having an argument in the bus at one point, 
for instance, and there was the use of twins on the bus as well. There was two uh, blonde East Germans, which kind of mirrors Saboteur, where there was the, the twins in the circus caravan as well, which I thought was a nice wee nod between both of the films. He seems to uh, like having these sort of elements. And, and then even big finale in the, the theatre and going on from there, it was all quite subdued. It wasn't overplayed in any way. All we needed to do was shout fire and then <laughs> everything could happen. A wee side note from that, the obviously there was a ballet performance mm-hmm. on that. That was actually designed by the same person who designed the ballet performance for the Red Shoes as well. So you could you could kind of see that in the way that it was set out and the way that it was staged and all that as well. But yes, it was... Uh, a lower key final act. The final act was quite long. It was about 45 minutes long as well. But it worked in terms of the, the overall film because, like I've, I've, I've noted a couple of times, he wasn't a professional spy. This wasn't, you know, they, they had a jet boat waiting for them, sitting in the river to whisk them away. This was, it was very sort of low key. You know, it, it was all done on the hoof almost, you know. Yeah, you, yeah. You, don't, you don't get many spies having to get the bus to escape. <laughs> no, no, on the number six of the town. No, I mean, I, I actually thought it was to show, like, again, I thought it was to show how difficult it was to get out of that country. You know, it literally was like planes, trains and automobiles just trying to get out. And, and every sort of, every stage that they went through seemed to be foiled. And you were like, fuck, are they ever going to get out of there? Like, this is so difficult. And again, it was I think it was to show that, for lots of ordinary people who obviously were trying to make the escape, you know, inside car seats and all the rest of it, like it was really, really hard. Like there was no concrete way of getting out of there that wasn't, you know, going to be foiled at the last minute. And I did like that kind of element of it as well. Oh, definitely. And this idea is that they're not in some post-apocalyptic war zone where there's like, soldiers mm-hmm. machine guns, well, but there's soldiers machine guns like, kind of like, in the streets and stuff. But they're not like they're in constant danger, but there's also people going about their lives normally. The buses still run. People go to their work and go to the ballet. It's like they're under, under communist rule, but it's it's done in a very realistic way. And especially for the time, especially for the time the movie came out, I'm surprised. Maybe they didn't get more criticism for the fact that it wasn't more critical mm-hmm. of life under that regime. Aye, there was no caricatures of yeah. like people getting rounded up in the streets or something like that. But at the same time, as you noted earlier on, Sammy, there is this kind of underlying threat of you kind of feel like anyone could be taken away at any time and actually any other person that they meet, you're like, can you trust them or are they a double agent? Or like, So I do think that it maybe doesn't need the caricatures you know, and the, and the stereotypes, because there is this the whole way through it, I just felt very tense and felt like you couldn't actually trust anyone. So maybe it doesn't need that. But you're right. I think for an American audience, I think they would have almost expected to see how terrible life was in East Berlin. I don't know why I did the inverted commas, it was terrible. But I think they were maybe expecting to see that. And you're right, there's a complete lack of it. Yep, totally. Yeah, a finale where the bus drives through the wall. <laughs> <laughs> the Michael Bay's remake of Tom Cotton. <laughs> there was a, a small element of the ballet scene which I, I thought was Hitchcock not really trusting the audience because the ballerina who had featured previously on the the plane into East Germany noticed him in the audience and that was telegraphed to the, yeah, it was telegraphed to the cinema audience by showing it three times 
her turning around and looking, doing a twirl and looking at him, and then again and again and again. And then it was the, and then she, the eyes, you know, she, she has her hands over her eyes and she, oh, I know who this is, you know, and you're kind of going, well, if you'd been following the story, which everybody was, then you would know that she was a character from before and she recognised them. It was it was clumsy, I would say, and it was quite un, unusual for Hitchcock, I thought. He doesn't usually do those sort of things, but was a, a lack of faith in the story itself, because I know they went into production with the story not finished to his satisfaction or... I'm not quite sure what, but it, it seemed to be better a place for me. Yeah, I totally agree. I think they rewrote the ending a couple of times. I know that he still, even when it went to cinema, it wasn't he wasn't happy with how it ended. But yeah, that was really. I mean, she just looked like a really like just a pure cow as well. To be honest with you, I didn't need like three massive close-ups of her face as well. But actually, it was like I don't know if it was trying to be sort of. I don't know what the word is. I don't know if he was trying to like do something really different in his movie. But again, it's one of those moments that again sort of stands out as being like inconsistent with the rest of this fairly not standard spy thriller. Because I think that's doing it a disservice. But what I mean is like all the rest of the tropes are there, whereas this sticks out as being something as like oh odd. Yeah, it's it's strange. And we mentioned that we mentioned that earlier as well. He does seem to be putting stuff in almost for the sake of his enjoyment. Yeah, at the expense of the the, the film itself. Just yeah. dissecting what they did to film me because of old time telling them what they done wrong. <laughs> well, this film wasn't very, very cheap when it came out either. It's, you no, know, it, it was heavily criticised. I don't even think it's that much of a. I don't think retrospectively people are big fans of it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's one of those films that where passage of time has been kind to and people look back at it differently now. I, I, don't, I, still, I don't think it's one of the most popular works. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I certainly hadn't seen it up until now. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely bloody loved it. And I was like, oh, it's a shame that it's taken me so long to see this. But, you know, now that we're, you know, I was making notes and I was talking about it, there are moments that jump out as being very, very odd and not in keeping with the rest of it. But I actually, I would say that it's one of the, out of the four that we've watched so far, I would say that I really have enjoyed this. Maybe not the most, but I think it was a really excellent watch. Yep. So you would recommend it then? Definitely. I think that, you know, it's funny because obviously John Le Carre died last week and I was thinking about, you know, Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy and the remake of that and, you know, the spy that came in from the cold and all those kind of real classics. And to me, this kind of, okay, there's some elements of it that kind of make you laugh and seem a bit odd, but I think that's up there with one of those kind of classic spy thrillers. It's got a good, strong cast, excellent storyline. You know, the the diffi- it shows the difficulties of what it's actually like to be on the run or to murder someone or to try and escape from somewhere. And it's not, it doesn't sugarcoat all of these facts that things were, you know, messy and difficult and, you know, politics was very, you know, charged at that particular moment in time as well. And I, I did, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah, luckily we don't live in that sort of environment now where uh, <laughs> we have charged politics. So, Thomas, would you would you recommend this movie? I would, yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I did think, as much as I enjoyed the climax, it did drag a little. There's a lot of these subplots kind of thrown in what could have did without, in my opinion. And it was at the ten, I thought it was a great level of attention for how it was played out. I would recommend it, yeah. And I thought the, the leads were both very good. The chemistry, yeah, as you were saying, I didn't really notice the lack of it, but I don't disagree with you, either of you, regarding it. But I think we'll both have very good performances, and I think it's a very good film. Nice, yeah, I would, I would agree with both of you. It's a pretty enjoyable film. It did have its moments where we took it to bits somewhat. 
I I think when you look at these films and if you're concentrating on the small things about them, like the hairstyles and some of the the reasons, like soft focus and all this sort of stuff, because you're concentrating on those things, it's it's actually complementary because you're you're saying the main themes and the the main drive of the story are all really sound. So therefore, you you're putting that to one side, and therefore you're concentrating on the wee things it's as a as a compliment away i know it doesn't sound like it sometimes when critics talk about films but if you talk about the minutiae of films rather than the overall themes then they've usually done something right yeah yeah and i feel like with hitchcock like you're you're in safe hands do you know what i mean like the themes are going to be you know fairly straightforward you know there's going to be certain patterns that you're going to pick up pick up on so yeah you kind of you can trust the story and let that unfold and as you say that's when you start to pick up on the smaller stuff excellent so that's it ladies and gentlemen of our audience i'm assuming that a lady actually listens to us uh <laughs> probably, probably not anymore after my uh, women's shush comment <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, no. So if you have any thoughts on the two films that we have discussed today, please get in touch with us. You can find us at all the normal social media channels and you can send us an email at podcast at moviescramble.co.uk. First time, Mary. First time. Got it right first time. So please do let us know what you think. And if you have any comments or any ideas about other Hitchcock pairings that we can look at. We do have a list, but we are quite happy to amend that or adjust it as we go along. Uh, well, Mary's saying no because she made up the list. <laughs> so please scratch that last comment. So once again, thank you very much for listening to the Movie Scamble podcast. We shall see you later. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.